I'm Derek Alexander Pope, Managing Director of the Arc of Justice Institute, and welcome to Hidden Legal Figures. Each week, this podcast brings you the lost stories of the heroic and vital contribution that lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. This week, Mark Curridan shares with us the compelling story of a 1906 legal drama and a lawyer named Noah Pardon, who made respect for the rule of law a gift to future generations of Americans. And I'm going to tell you the story of Ship. It's, it's a fascinating tale. Uh, there's a lot of first. And I'm going to kind of walk you through the first and you'll see the flags as they pop up. The flags will be, for example, it's the first lawyers of color to take a case as lead counsel to the Supreme Court of the United States. It's the first time that we see a federal habeas petition ever filed in a state criminal proceeding. It's the first time that the Supreme Court of the United States issued a stay of an execution in a state criminal case. And it involves the first and only criminal trial ever held in the history of the Supreme Court. Mark Curridan is a brilliant storyteller and a gifted writer. He's also a lawyer and a journalist. Mark earned his law degree from Vanderbilt University and began his career as a journalist in 1988 as the legal affairs writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In 1999, Mark wrote a book entitled Contempt of Court, the turn of the century lynching that launched a hundred years of federalism. Mark made a special presentation at one of our programs held at Georgia State University College of Law to talk about the book, which is the story of Ed Johnson, a young black man from Chattanooga, Tennessee, who in 1906 was falsely accused of rape. And in three short weeks, he was arrested, tried, convicted, and sentenced to die. Two African-American lawyers, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins, stepped in to handle Johnson's appeal. The lawyers convinced the Supreme Court of the United States to stop Johnson's execution. But before they could get him released, a lynch mob, aided by the sheriff and his deputies, lynched Johnson. Angered by this action, the Supreme Court ordered that the sheriff and his deputies all be arrested, and the court charged them all with contempt and put them on trial. It is the only time in United States history when the Supreme Court conducted a criminal trial. In this episode, Mark talks about the incident and the events that led to Johnson being arrested and the beginning of his trial. The case they took on began on January the 21st, 1906. It took place in Chattanooga, Tennessee. A young woman named Nevada Taylor, she was white. She was about 21 years old. She was a bookkeeper at a grocery store in downtown Chattanooga. She gets off work about 6.30 p.m. on January 21st. She takes an electric trolley from downtown to the foot of Lookout Mountain, where she lived with her father. Her father was the keeper of a very prominent cemetery. She steps off the electric trolley and she walks between a few buildings towards the home where her father lived. According to both the police and newspaper reports, there was no light in the sky. As she's walking between these buildings, all of a sudden she hears some footsteps come up behind her. Before she can turn around, a leather strap comes around her throat. She hears some words, if you scream, I will kill you. And then she's choked in unconsciousness. About 20 minutes later, she comes to, she looks around, the assailant is gone. She grabs her thing, she runs home, 
She tells her father what had happened. Her father picks up the telephone and calls the sheriff. Now remember, we're talking January 1906. According to newspaper reports, telephones had only been installed in this neighborhood about six weeks earlier. This was probably one of the first phone calls the family had ever made. The sheriff, Joseph F. Ship, comes to the crime scene within a half an hour, brings with him four deputies. The deputies comb the neighborhood looking for possible suspects or witnesses. The sheriff goes inside and interviews the victim, Nevada Taylor, and she walks him through what had happened, getting off the electric trolley, walking between the buildings, hearing the footsteps, feeling the leather strap, hearing those words, if you scream, I will kill you. There wasn't much to go on to find out who in fact had committed the crime. Nevada Taylor had no specifics at all about who had attacked her. Not his race, not his height. She thought maybe he wore a hat. But according to the original police report, she couldn't identify her attacker at all. She didn't know whether he was white or black, didn't know how tall he was, thought maybe he wore a hat. And she remembered the words, if you scream, I will kill you. Well, the next morning's newspapers decried it as the most heinous crime ever committed in the history of Chattanooga. And the fact, despite the fact that the victim declined to identify the race of the attacker, the sheriff in the newspaper identified him as, quote, the Negro brute and said once the Negro brood is arrested, the people of Chattanooga probably won't even wait for the wheels of justice to turn. They'll come to the courthouse and the jail right away, and they'll institute immediate justice or lynch law. There were no suspects, but the newspapers kept calling the attacker the Negro brute, and they referred to the victim as the young white princess, and they said someone must pay. And right here is where the story takes its first turn toward the bazaar. And the judge and the sheriff were up for re-election come early April. The morning newspaper and the afternoon newspapers wrote editorials saying, you know what, if the judge and the, Chatt and the sheriff in Chattanooga cannot find out who committed this horrible crime, maybe we shouldn't wait to election day to remove them from office. Maybe we should remove them now and bring in a new sheriff and a new deputy who can find out who committed this horrible crime and bring this case to justice. Well, the judge and the sheriff get together. They realize their political lives are in danger, and they got together a reward of $375 that would go to anyone with information that would lead to an arrest in the attack on Nevada Taylor. And lo and behold, uh, the next morning's newspapers announced the reward. And now a witness appears. His name was Will Hickson. Hickson worked at the Chattanooga Medicine Company near the St. Elmo Cemetery where the incident took place. Hickson called the sheriff at home and wanted to know if the reward money was still being offered. The sheriff said yes, then drove to Hickson's house where Hickson told him. I saw a man near the scene of the crime about the, crime that about the time that the crime took place and he was carrying a leather strap just like the one described in the newspaper. And that man's name is Ed Johnson. Ed Johnson was 19 years old. His mother was described as a Christian woman who later cried when her son was arrested. His father was known only as Skinbone. Ed was not married. He had no children. He dropped out of school in the fourth grade. He made a living as a day laborer and had helped put roofs on two churches and worked on additions to three houses. In the evenings, he did odd jobs at the Last Chance Saloon. And now, on Thursday, January 25th, 
Ed Johnson became a suspect. Well, they arrest Ed Johnson and they charge him with the rape of Nevada Taylor and he tells them, I didn't do it, I couldn't have done it. I was two miles away at the Last Chance Saloon. I can give you the names of a dozen men and they'll swear I was there. Well, the sheriff and the judge get together and they realize there will be a lynching attempt at the jail that night. The newspapers had all but predicted it. Wait a minute. The newspapers had predicted it? Wasn't it the sheriff who was quoted in the newspaper just the morning after the incident that the people would want to institute immediate justice or lynch law? Wasn't it the sheriff who was calling the attacker the Negro brute? I wonder what the sheriff did to protect Ed Johnson. So they put two plainclothes deputies and Ed Johnson on a train to Nashville for safekeeping pending trial. And indeed that night and the following night, several hundred men show up at the county jail. They're gonna break into the jail and they're gonna kill Ed Johnson. But of course he's not there. Two days after Ed Johnson was arrested, the judge in Chattanooga decided he wanted to hold a fast and speedy trial. The judge's name was Samuel D. McReynolds. Judge McReynolds decided he wanted to hold a fast and speedy trial, but he also realized he needed to appoint a couple of lawyers to represent Ed Johnson. Here we need to have a little understanding about what the Constitution says in criminal cases like these. The Sixth Amendment says that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall have the right to the assistance of counsel for his defense. It was not until 1963, however, in a famous case called Gideon versus Wainwright, that this right to counsel applied to cases in state courts. Before then, it was only in federal courts that this right was guaranteed. Many states, especially in the South, and more particularly when the accused was poor or black, simply ignored this right. But when it came to the right to counsel, Tennessee was a little different. But the Tennessee Constitution, when it was drafted in 1792, stated, that anyone charged with a felony offense had the right to counsel. And 1792, state constitution, Tennessee. And if the defendant cannot afford a lawyer, the state will provide a lawyer for the defendant. Well, the judge realized he needed to appoint a lawyer, but he didn't interpret the state constitution as meaning that these lawyers need to be, well, competent. So he appoints two lawyers, neither of them had ever handled a criminal case before. One lawyer had retired from practicing law six and a half years earlier. They bring, he brings both the lawyers in, and according to the record later, they plead, and they plead with the judge, don't get us, we don't, we're not qualified to take on this case. You know, we don't do criminal law. Please don't appoint us. The judge responds, according to the record, you don't have to do any work in the case. Just be there to meet the constitutional responsibilities. Well, that next morning, the newspapers report who the two lawyers are. Unfortunately for Ed Johnson, a third lawyer decides to elbow his way on the case, and his name is Lewis Shepard, and he's kind of the, he was the dean of the, the Chattanooga Bar. He would be the, the Bobby Lee Cook of today, maybe. And uh, he reads about this, and he decides, I'm taking over this case. You know, he was a political opponent of the sheriff and the judge, and he had been a, a district attorney years earlier, and he decided to take on the case. Well, the newspapers report that, and the next morning, the judge calls all the lawyers into chambers. Now remember, the crime took place on January 21st. We're now talking about January 28th. He calls all the lawyers into chambers, and he says, we're gonna hold a fast and speedy trial. We're gonna do it in Chattanooga in 10 days. 
The Sixth Amendment does guarantee a right to a speedy trial, but the judge seemed determined to break the sound barrier. And when Lewis Shepard objects, another bizarre thing happens. And then Lewis Shepard, the older lawyer, speaks up and goes, Judge, come on, not 10 days. We need more time. Our client's off in Nashville. We need to interview him. There's lots of witnesses. And the judge responds, according to the record, don't even file a motion for a continuance or a stay. I won't grant it. It will only make me angry. Wait a minute. Can you believe this? A judge tells a lawyer, if you file a motion, if you try to protect your client, basically, if you do your job, it will only make me angry. He said he was going to hold the trial in Chattanooga in 10 days. At which point, Lewis Shepard speaks up again. He goes, Judge, come on, not Chattanooga. There's been two lynching attempts on the defendant's life. The newspapers are filled with venom. The jury pool's a little tainted. We should move the trial to Nashville, Knoxville, Memphis, someplace other than Chattanooga. At which point, Judge McReynolds responds, according to the record, don't even file a motion for change of venue. I won't grant it. It'll only make me angry. Nope, we're going to hold the trial in 10 days in Chattanooga. And 11 days later, Ed Johnson was brought back and put on trial. During this small 11-day window, Lewis Shepard and William G. Thomas, one of the other lawyers who had been appointed to represent Ed Johnson, went to see him in the jail in Nashville. They spoke with him for hours. Ed Johnson told them every step of his activities and whereabouts on January 21st. He told them he could give them the names of the people he remembered seeing and talking to that day. Those people, Ed said, would vouch for him. Shepard told him that he was personally tracking down all those men. Unknown to Ed Johnson, Noah Pardon had already begun assisting Shepard in getting those men to testify. Shepard had gone to Noah Pardon to try to get him to participate in handling Ed's case. At that time, Noah Pardon refused. But we'll discuss that a little later. At that moment, all Shepard wanted to do was make Ed Johnson understand that his alibi witnesses were all black and had reputations for being drunks and derelicts and might not be able to help him. It was like that in the South where a black man was accused of a crime. Unless a respected white person came forward to prove an alibi, there was not much hope. But Shepard said he would vigorously fight for Johnson. What's going to happen? Johnson asked. I don't know, Shepard responded. But soon the sheriff will come for you and bring you back to Chattanooga, where there will be a trial. I will be there. So will Mr. Thomas and another lawyer. Will I be able to go home and see my mother? Johnson asked. Shepard responded, Ed, these are very serious charges. You should pray very hard. Your life is at stake. The people of Chattanooga are very mad and they want someone to die for this crime. But I don't understand, Johnson continued. I never done what they say. I swear to God I didn't. I never seen the woman they brought up here before. I didn't even know where she lived. I just want to go home. Shepard put his arms around his client and gave him a strong hug. 
At that moment, the lawyer knew the authorities had the wrong man. On Tuesday, February 6, 1906, two weeks after Nevada Taylor heard footsteps come up from behind her, feel a leather strap around her neck and heard a voice saying, if you make a sound, I will kill you. Ed Johnson, a man who could barely read or write, a man who had a dozen alibi witnesses who could all swear that he was two miles away at his job at the Last Chance Saloon, entered the courtroom of Judge Samuel D. McReynolds in the Hamilton County Criminal Court building shortly after 9 a.m. to stand trial for a crime he did not commit. On the next Hidden Legal Figures. The trial of Ed Johnson begins, and not too surprisingly, there was a quick verdict of guilt and a sentence of death issued. But to everyone's amazement, Johnson gets two new lawyers who handle his appeal, and together they begin to make history and shape constitutional law in ways that had never happened before. Well, that's when the two lawyers on the cover of the book, Noah Pardon and Stiles Hutchins, enter the story. Um, they were sitting in their office two days after the crime took place, uh, after, uh, actually it was after the uh, sentence had taken place. And in walks Ed Johnson's father and he pleads and begs with him, take my son's case on appeal, you know he didn't do it and you know he didn't get a fair trial. For the better part of the afternoon, according to their own writings, Pardon and Hutchins debated on whether to take this case. I mean, keep in mind, this was, this was uh, the most racially divisive case in Tennessee history. These were two struggling lawyers, the only two lawyers of color practicing law in all of Southeast Tennessee and North Georgia. Up against them were all white male lawyers, all white male judges, all white male jurors. If they alienated the opposing counsel and all the judges and all the jurors, who would want to hire them as lawyers? Their careers were at stake. But finally, at the end of the day, they agreed to take on the case. The next day, they go into Hamilton County Criminal Court Division I, stand before Judge McReynolds, and they say, Your Honor, Noah Pardon stands up and says, Your Honor, I'm Noah Pardon. I'm here to file a motion for a new trial on behalf of my client, Ed Johnson. At which point, uh, the judge is kind of confused, thought this case was over, I thought he'd waived his rights to an appeal, clearly he has new counsel. And the judge says, Mr. Pardon, Mr. Hutchins, I've got a very full docket today, may I return tomorrow? And he said, of course. And they did, they returned the next day. And Noah Pardon stood up in open court and he says, Your Honor, I'm Noah Pardon, I'm here to file that motion for new trial on behalf of our client, Ed Johnson. That and more on our next episode entitled, A Lawyer's Appeal. Thank you for listening and be sure to tune in next week for Hidden Legal Figures, the podcast. In partnership with the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, the Arc of Justice Institute is developing a traveling exhibit to recognize the heroic and vital contributions lawyers and judges made to the civil rights movement. Under the Color of Law will premiere in 2021. To learn more, visit www.onthearc.net.